Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Monday, November 7th, the Science of Friendship edition. I'm Jamila Lemieux, a writer, contributor to Slate's Care and Feeding Parenting column, and mom to Naima, who's nine and a half, and we live in L.A. I'm Elizabeth Newcamp. I write the homeschool and family travel blog, Dutch Dutch Goose. I'm the mom of three littles, Henry, who's 10, Oliver, who's eight, and Teddy, who's five. We live in Colorado Springs, Colorado. I'm Zach Rosen. I make the Best Advice Show podcast. And I live in Detroit with my family. My oldest, Noah, is five, and my youngest, Ami, is two. This week on the show, we've decided to take some time and talk about friendships, how to find them, how to cultivate them, and even how to let them go. It's such a core, important part of our lives, yet it's something that people have the most trouble with. So for our main segment today, Zach will be talking with Marissa Franco, author of Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. It's a fascinating conversation, so be sure to stick around. But first, we wanted to dive into the mailbag. We received a couple of touching emails from a few child-free listeners after our Parenting is a Joke episode. Hi, Mom and Dad. I've been a devoted listener of the podcast for about two years now. And in the episode Parenting is a Joke, the motivation of non-parent listeners came up, and I wanted to share my own thoughts. I'm in my mid-20s, and I'm just finishing up grad school. I really don't have contact with children in my day-to-day life. My boyfriend's sister introduced me to the show in order to share a reflection of a childhood memory she had. And this was around the time where we were deep in the pandemic, and I ended up binging hours upon hours of the show to fill the constant silence and uncertainty. It's kind of funny. I don't really see the podcast as a tool of preparing me for parenting, though I'm looking forward to potentially having kids one day. And it's not really a tool to better my interaction with children. For me, the podcast provides deeper understanding into the complexities of human relationships, especially those which occur in a caretaker-child situation. It's given me insight into my own parents as people who struggled and continue to struggle to find their own approaches to the world. I was raised in a single parent household with a clinically depressed mother and a father who preferred to distance himself from my mother and ultimately me in the wake of their divorce. Needless to say, to survive, I had to grow up fast and felt the need to motivate my own mother to live. And that was the painful story I repeated in my head whenever I considered my family origins but that gave little credit for the life that they actually provided me. My mother worked night shifts as an RN in an emergency room, which allowed her to take us to school after her shift ended at 6 a.m. and see us when we got home before she had to leave for her 6 p.m. shift. She exudes endless love for her children. And that said, I now recognize that she discouraged my father and I to cultivate a meaningful relationship. It was an unfortunate circumstance that both him and I have thankfully been working past ever since I left for college. And in that healing, I have realized how deeply caring he is and his absolute dedication to providing stability for his family. It's in the stories of a diverse group of parents, which has made me comfortable in accepting my parents for exactly who they are. In turn, I've stopped blaming myself for the circumstances of my childhood. 
This is to say, I believe the podcast should give itself much more credit than it does for its role in people's lives, for both giving insight into the present as well as the past. Thank you all, guests included, for trusting a bunch of nameless listeners with glimpses into your own imperfect lives. P.S. I screamed when Dan's voice came over the microphone a few weeks ago. Thanks so much. Hey, Mom and Dad. A few weeks ago, you guys were in conversation with a guest host and mentioned listeners without children and possibly some reasons that they would have to tune into a parenting advice show. And I wanted to send this note because I'm one of those listeners. Initially, I listen because I love advice columnists, and I've worked with children often, mostly in camp and tutoring settings. I realized over time I stay because your stories and advice have illuminated for me a new modern way of parenting that affirms the dignity of every child and wholly respects their emotions. I love my parents and they did the best they could, but I was not raised that way. So it makes my heart so glad to hear the ways that you three do better. And even if I never become a parent, I know that I will have a different relationship to the children in my life because of your work. So thank you for all you do. As always, we love hearing your experiences and getting some additional advice. So please keep sending your letters in. You can do that by emailing at slate.com. On that note, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to dive into Zach's interview. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit so, Zach, can you tell us why you wanted to talk to Marissa and give us a little preview of what we're going to hear? Yeah, sure. So, Dr. Marissa Franco is a, a researcher, a professor, a psychologist, and she wrote this book called Platonic, all about friendship, because she rightfully just talks about how important physiologically, emotionally, intellectually, friendship is for us and how overshadowed our our friend relationships can get, especially like, you know once we start prioritizing romantic love over over platonic love. And, and so she wrote this book as a way to remind us how important our platonic friendships are, but also to give us some tools to become better friends. Here is my conversation with friendship scholar, Dr. Marissa Franco. I was listening to this podcast yesterday, actually, and the host was talking about how she kind of envies teens today because when she was growing up in the 90s, and I related to this, when she was growing up in the 90s, she felt she felt weird and like this, you know, singular flawed person with her own unique issues. But she's noticing that now kids today, they have TikTok and they're seeing, oh, like these, these seemingly weird, you know, um, freaky thoughts I'm having. They're actually quite common and I'm not alone <laughs> because I'm seeing it like right here reflected on social media. Yeah. And so... So I thought we could start by talking about this particular historical moment for kids and for teens. From your vantage point, can you give us like a little mini State of the Union kid (laughs) friendship edition? I like that 
view of the positive that cool, they're being able to talk about this complex things online and, and feel less shame over it, which is great. But on the other hand, these teenagers, this teenage generation is lonely than any other generation has ever been. Uh, mm-hmm. They spend less time with their friends than any other generation has. Um, and it is just crisis levels. There was a report that was released that basically argued based on their data that teenagers are experiencing this loss of the social self, which basically means they had all of these variables related to like your sense of self, like your self-esteem and your relationships with others were just lonelier than they are for all of the other generations. And so um, while we can certainly get into the complexities of technology that we can use technology to connect with people, mm-hmm. when we don't use technology intentionally, it really does harm our ability to connect with people. And I think that's that's true for a lot of teenagers. You write in your book that like as a people, not just kids, but like all of us, we are kind of lonelier than we've ever been. Yep. We have the least amount of friends. And is it in human history? The data I've seen since 1950 is that we've been steadily getting lonelier since then. But in the mm. 19, around 2012, there was a spike. And that was around when the smartphone became widely popular. There was a spike in... In loneliness started to spike even mm-hmm. as it was progressively increasing. Mm-hmm. Well, to zoom out a little bit, I think we all know how important our friendships are in our lives. But your book really drills down into like the the very specific, profound, life-giving properties of, of friendship. Can you describe like what we overlook when we talk about friendship? Yeah. So I think it's just this way that we have this amnesia, but if we look back into our history, we will see that our friends sort of made us who we are. Um, you know, there's this psychiatrist, Harry Stack Sullivan, who talks a lot about that. He has this theory of, of chumships that basically you have these chums or these friends And they help you develop empathy, right? Because as kids, kids aren't feeling empathy for their parents. They're just, you know, they take from their parents. But with their peers, they have to learn empathy to be able to maintain relationships. So it's really the first relationship where you learn to to be more giving and to begin perspective taking. Um, But not only that, he kind of argues that when we feel shame about ourselves, it makes us feel inhuman and we push away that side of ourselves. And then we expend all this energy trying to hide that sense of shame. So in some ways, our shame kind of replaces our entire personality. But he kind of argues that when we share our shame with our friends, which, you know, teenagers do, kids do, and we continue to do throughout life, that their acceptance of us, we internalize. And then we accept that part of ourselves that we previously felt ashamed of, and it no longer takes over our life, all the energy we we use to to try to kind of push that away. And we, we sort of become to integrate these different aspects of ourselves and experience this sense of wholeness through fundamentally, first and foremost, um, when we're forming our identity at this age, like one of our primary relationships, our safest relationship is really with our friends. I can think of some ways that I shared my shame with my, with my inner circle growing up. Can you give us like, some some shame sharing strategies. <laughs> oh gosh, the shame sharing strategy. The number one is like obviously choose someone that you are friends with and that you have an established relationship with and that you feel some semblance of safety with, right? Right, right. So don't, you know, don't willy-nilly share with um whoever or some people, you know, I talk about anxious attachment in the book, these people that are so afraid people abandon them, they actually tend to share their shame with people that they, they're they not sure if that person's safe as a way to try to 
to almost like test that person. Test the waters. Yeah. yeah. Like, will you stick yeah. around if you knew this thing about me? And and yeah. I don't recommend that. <laughs> I recommend going to the person that you've known the longest or felt the safest around and choosing them for your shame. And the other thing that I suggest is based on something called the beautiful mess effect, which is this phenomenon that when we're vulnerable, we underestimate how positively people receive it. Mm. Right. So for me, my last shame sharing was when I had COVID, it was OG COVID. I felt so ashamed. I felt so ashamed that I might have given it to other people. And I remembered, I don't want to share this with my friend, but I know that this will benefit me to share. And I also know that although my body is telling me that she's going to judge me for this, she's going to judge me less than I think. Like I had more humility around that assumption related to vulnerability. And of course she didn't judge me at all. And she was very loving and I was crying and, you know, she kind of just tried to to be very self-compassionate towards me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think just also keeping that in mind that when we think about how our vulnerability comes off, our judgments are so skewed and likely people are going to be yeah. more loving towards you than you think. I mean, you're a pro at this, but like what happened between the time that you felt the shame and decided to share it? How did you get to that point of convincing yourself to share it. It was literally like forcing myself (laughs) because yeah, I really had to force because shame is basically the idea that if I share this thing about you, Brene Brown talks about this, Mm -hmm. you're not going to love me. Like that's part of what shame is. Right. So like the fact that we feel shame about something means that we think that if we tell this to people, they're not going to love us fundamentally by definition. Right. So sometimes we really, we really need to force ourselves you know, why should we force ourselves? Because sharing our shame tends to deepen our relationships. It also, I talk about in the research, uh, the the book Platonic, a study that found that out of 106 factors that influence our um, depression, having a confidant is the most significant protector against it. So like, it really does so much for our mental health and well-being. And I had to, I know the research my body didn't feel the research. Right. <laughs> so right. I had to almost intellectually force myself and wait for my body to catch up. Do you think teens uh, in particular are are poised to learn this lesson or maybe have less barriers around uh, sharing what they're ashamed about? You know, I think teens are really good at um, confession, but not vulnerability. Um, I describe the difference between those things as confession is you're not considering the receiver. Like they're not really, you're not almost perceiving them that they exist. Like I write a book, I share all this vulnerable thing. It doesn't actually feel like I'm being vulnerable because it's like into the ether. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think that's social media too, where we can share these very vulnerable things on TikTok or Instagram, but it feels less vulnerable than if we sat down with one of the people that is watching this video and actually told this to them. And so um, you know, there's this difference in that you're you're not actually facing the consequences in the same way because it's not as much of a visceral experience because there's some distance. So I think teens, to your earlier point, they're great at confessing. There's more of this conversation on like mental health, well-being, quirks than there ever has been, but I'm not sure that they're great at vulnerability. Hmm. Is anyone doing a good job of, you know, teaching vulnerability? Like, is that part of curriculums now? Like, since like Brene Brown kind of, you know, made it, made it pop. Is there, hmm. are there districts that you know of or, you know? There's, there are programs. I mean, I consult for this, this, um this program that helps create curriculum for schools. 
So there is definitely more talk about it. And I think finally Congress is talking about mental health. So my, and especially because like there, the mental health issue is at crisis levels. Like I have parents contacting me about their kids who are so lonely, struggle so much to make friends. Their mental health is really, really suffering. Right. And it's just like, how bad does it have to get (laughs) before we just start like taking more preventative measures. Like, let's just make sure we're, we're talking about this before it happens, before people are suffering, before things are so bad. Okay. I am Joe Biden and you are getting a call from me right now. I'm not going to do an impression because I can't, but um, okay. Dr. Franco, this is Joe Biden. I'm calling from the Oval Office. I right now am making you czar of teenage mental health. Ah. First, first of all, congratulations. <laughs> Uh, I had a long list. You were at the top. I was looking for New York Times bestselling authors in particular who are also professors and uh, psychologists. So you've got the gig. We are going to make an impact. What are you going to do in your first 100 days as czar? Ooh, well, first of all, thank you, Joe. I'm so, so flattered. Um, I would like for us to mandate a mental health socio-emotional learning curriculum in schools, like at least one class, right? I think we can do one class, right? And more funding of that, more resources of that, more qualified people to, you know, there's obviously a lot of moving parts that you would have to invest in to get this this way. But I think that socio-emotional learning piece, this is, I talk about this, I teach a class on loneliness. It has to include technology. It has to include what does it look like to have a responsible relationship with technology? Because again, I shared technology can connect you to people. The problem is we're not using it in ways and our teens aren't using it in ways that foster connection. So Mm -hmm. we need to understand how to use the technology to be able to actually leverage it for connection. What can you, because you're going to get to do a, um, what is it called? The State of the Union. Um, I'm just going to give you my slot. I'm still Biden here. I'm just going (laughs) to give you my slot and you're going to get to talk directly to the American people. So what do you want them to know? I would like you to know um, that the research finds that when we use technology to replace in-person connection, we're lonelier than ever. When we use it to facilitate in-person connection, we're less lonely than if we had no technology. So you use your technology to contact someone on Instagram to hang out in person. Use your technology mm-hmm. to you know comment on that TikTok video, get to know that person so you can then hang out face-to-face, right? Use it as a jump-off point. It's not the end in itself. Like scrolling over TikTok, that may make you feel connected, but it's actually just another form of isolation and its impact mm-hmm. on your mental health and its impact on your feelings. The other thing that I will say is that how we use technology, there's some research finds no relationship between technology use and mental health. And that's because it really depends on how you use it. When you just lurk and you just scroll, it negatively impacts mental health, feelings of connection. When you engage, you're commenting on people's pages, you're sharing that you're proud of them, happy for them, you're messaging people, right? You're sharing things about yourself. That active engagement is actually related to feeling more connected. So using it in that intentional way means I'm going to use this to connect with people in person and I am going to actually comment and engage. And if I'm endlessly scrolling, I'm going to notice and I'm going to stop myself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all know kids. We might have, they might be our kids. We might have been those kids when we were younger, but we all know kids who have had a hard time making friends. Maybe they're quiet or, you know, they're dealing with depression or feel like outsiders or any combination they're in. As parents and caregivers who aren't in the thick of that loneliness that our kids are feeling, 
you know, we sometimes tell them, you know, you should join a club or, you know, put yourself out there more. But like, what do you think we should say in addition to that pretty basic advice that might, (laughs) um, you know, sound pretty hollow to our kids? We need to validate that, hey, loneliness is really hard and it feels really bad. And some of the ways, you know, I think of loneliness, not, it's not just a feeling, it's actually a mind state where you think people are rejecting you when they're not, you dislike Mm. other people, you desire to connect, you also desire to withdraw, you see other people as more threatening, right? And so I think we need to also remind them that sometimes when you're lonely, you might feel that everybody is going to reject you. Is that, is that how you feel sometimes, right? But in Mm. fact, you know, that's just a feeling that our, our sort of a way that our brain might speak to us when we're lonely. And it's not necessarily the truth. Like, I wonder if there's any times where someone did show you that they loved you or valued you today. Like, tell me about that moment, right? It's about teaching our kids to savor those moments of safety, to savor those moments of acceptance, to break out of this reinforcing cycle that is I'm lonely. I think everyone's rejecting me. I'm going to withdraw. Now everybody is is really rejecting me because I'm pulling away from them, right? And it starts with our kids learning to find ways to feel safe. One thing you suggest in your book that we might try is to tell our friends how much we value them. And I thought we could end this interview by each of us shouting out a friend of ours in this way. So can you start and model what you mean? And then I'll pick uh, one of my friends and, and do this too. <laughs> I love this. I will shout out to my friend Krisha because Krisha always shows up. She's the one who reaches out and sees how you're doing. She's the one when you have an event, she's always there. She's the one that understands that friendship is a responsibility and a deep investment in another person. And Krisha makes me feel loved and Krisha makes me feel cared for. And she does it without me even asking. It's part of her very identity. And so I love you, Krisha. I'm going to send this to you <laughs> when it comes out. <laughs> I love it. Krisha, thank you for, for doing this important work that you're doing. So I have a group of friends who I've been best friends with since kindergarten, this group of guys. Um, we call ourselves the, the Minglers. And we are uh, in touch every day on, on Discord. And the thing that I want to say to you minglers is that I feel like there's nothing off limits going back to the shame thing. Like I can say anything to you, whether it's embarrassing or ridiculous. Um, and I know that I'm not going to lose you as my friends. Uh, I feel very safe, uh, talking about whatever with you guys. And, uh, I've realized as I've grown older that this is a, a unique thing, especially for, for guys I found. So thank you for always making me feel safe. And I love you guys. Is there anything else you want to say? Hmm. I mean, I, first of all, I feel our warm inside from listening to your affection and sharing mine. So thank you for that. And that, you know, my niece, she's a young person. <laughs> she read my book and here's what she took away from it that I think we also need to impart for to our kids. Great. That for friendship to happen, someone has to be brave. So be brave. I love that. Uh, thank you so much for your time and uh, and for this wonderful book. Dr. Thank you so much Marissa for having Franco. me. This is awesome. This was fun. Thank you for that, Zach. We're going to link to Platonic, how the science of attachment can help you make and keep friends in the show notes. We're going to take one more quick break. And when we come back, we'll give you our recommendations. 
It's finally time for recommendations. Elizabeth, what do you have for us this week? Okay, I am recommending that you take your kids to like a great bookstore, Mm. a small kid-friendly bookstore where the staff is going to come out from behind the shelves and see what your kids are reading and make recommendations. When we were in Atlanta, we went to my favorite, which is called The Little Shop of Stories. And I've been going there, I think, for a long time. I just, every time I'm there, it's, you know, new people working and they are just so into what my kids are into. They have adult books there, but it is mainly a children's bookstore. And I just let them browse. I told them that we would each be getting one book for the plane ride home, um, but they had to choose. And then I went and looked at picture books, which I love to do, and left them to their own devices. And they all picked something like, great, Henry just read the book um, Front Desk for school, for what we're doing in homeschool. And he kind of had a list and was going to go in and get another one from this list and instead chose the second book from this, from uh, Yang series. And so I was so like... Uh, He's such a list kid, like finishing stuff that he would read this book and be so into it that he wanted to pick up the second and he finished it on the flight. It was great. And even Teddy picked out like a great little reader and he said, I can read, you know, six of the words on the page. So this is a good one for me to get. So I just was so pleased we had the best time. It was it was completely chaotic because they all had to make choices and I like left them. Um, But it was just a lovely experience that I, I think really drives in that love for reading and books. And so I go find a great bookstore and and go there and browse with your kids. Love it. Very cool. Zach, what about you? I'm going to recommend a movie. It's a French film called Petite Maman, um, which means little little mom, I think. It's from the filmmaker who did... Did you, either of you see Portrait of a Lady on Fire? Mm-mm. No. It's, it's incredible. But the, the filmmaker, her name is Celine Sciamma. And this one, it's super short, first of all, um, which is a lame way to like start my adoration for a movie it's it's only 70 minutes but it's only 70 minutes uh, um, that works for me yeah you know, exactly. i've talked about the length of movies before <laughs> i'm already sold and it centers around just this incredible nine-year-old uh french actress who goes she loses her grandma at the beginning of the movie um and she and her mom and dad go to clean out her grandmother's stuff at at her apartment she therein like enters this this magical realm where I don't want to tell you what happens, but it's it's just this beautiful meditation on uh, childhood and friendship and time and the ways we can get to know our parents in unexpected ways. So it's really lovely and um, profound and also pretty subtle and 70 minutes long. Petite Maman. It's on Hulu. Sounds very good. I love a petite movie. Um, I am following back up on a recommendation that I made quite some time ago that Dan also made. It's the show Girls 5 Eva. They're getting a new season. Yes. So like (laughs) Girls 5 Eva is currently on Peacock and it's moving for season three to Netflix. which I'm so excited about it. It's such a good show. It has not gotten the sort of attention I think it deserves just considering the like level of quality television that it is. Uh, There's musical performances. It's just really, really, really good. I think that 
A few of the actresses should have been considered for Emmys. It's just yes. great. Um, and so you can catch up on seasons one and two now on Peacock. And then in the future, uh, they haven't announced the dates yet. It's moving to Netflix. But I want to make sure that you all are ready for ready. season three, that you've seen all two seasons. So, you know, hit me for my Peacock password if you need it. <laughs> I know most of you don't have it. It's good for rewatching too. Like sometimes I watch these things and I'm like, okay, that was good, but I wouldn't want to revisit it. But I find myself yes. like revisiting. I, I tend to put on, you know, a show when I'm drying my hair or something. <laughs> just, mm-hmm. just like when I have time and I'm packing, I want it playing in the background. And th- these have been like a fit. Like I can just go back and I'm still just as like, it brings me joy. I walk out feeling joyful. That's such a good, yes, everyone get ready because we want the show to stay. Yes. We need to make it huge. It's very, very, very good. Okay. There's well-rounded reviews today. Books, <laughs> movies, TV. We've got you covered. We've got you all covered. And that is our well-rounded show. <laughs> um, we'll be back in your feeds on Thursday with special guests to talk about cultivating parenting friends. You don't want to miss it. And while you're at it, hey, please subscribe to the show and give us a rating and review on Apple or Spotify. This episode of Mom and Dad are Fighting is produced by Christy Tywell Macanjula and Rosemary Belson. For Zach Rosen and Elizabeth Newcamp, I'm Jamila Lemieux. Thank you for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.